On June 11, 1981, Issei Sagawa would invite his classmate Rene Hartfelt over to read some poetry in German. As she was reading, Sagawa snuck away, grabbed a rifle, pointed it at the back of her neck, and pulled the trigger. After she collapsed on the floor, Sagawa would consume part of her flesh and perform sexual acts with the body over the course of two full days. Several days later, he was apprehended by police after trying to hide the body in a nearby park. While he did not stand trial due to French law preventing it, he was and is guilty. Hi, and welcome to The Guilty Podcast, where we find the why behind the who, what, when, and where. My name is Colin, and I'm going to be your host. We're going to start today's episode like we normally do with some housekeeping. The first thing I want to do is apologize to Petals21 for missing her review last time. I didn't realize that different countries have different reviews on iTunes. So I wanted to share her review and then thank the other five-star reviews that we've gotten over the past two weeks. So Petals... Review reads, I'm a huge fan of true crime podcasts, and like many people, subscribe to a lot of them. This one is so well done. Great narrative, respectful host, psychological analysis, and just a great listen. I couldn't possibly give you any less than the five stars it deserves. Give it a listen, folks. Thank you, Petals. That's very, very thoughtful and nice. I appreciate it, and I apologize for missing you last time. I also want to thank Hallie Bean, C-I-L-9-M-X-M, Ponhiki, Kaywick, TC Addict 36, and Jordan Texas for all of the reviews. I really appreciate that. And Jordan Texas is actually from another amazing podcast called The Minds of Madness. So if you haven't heard their podcast, please go check it out. It is an amazing true crime podcast. Speaking of podcasts, I'd also like to share a promo for True Crime Fan Club, which is another great podcast that you should check out. Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. So definitely go check out our podcast. It's well-researched, well-presented, and an all-around great true crime podcast. I want to mention something about this particular story before we get started. Issei Sagawa has changed his story numerous times. Very much like the Stephen McDaniel case, the only word we have about what happened, the night of the murder, and the few days after, is directly from Sagawa himself. If you watch the documentaries, you'll see that he's changed numerous facts about the case, and he stated different things to different people at different times. So this is not necessarily what happened. What I'm going to present is what I believe happened, and is the most likely scenario. 
Some details may vary. With that said, let's jump in and talk about Issei Sagawa. I don't normally give disclaimers on this show. I feel like if you're listening to a true crime podcast and you're an adult, you can be ready for what's going to come. However, today's episode is particularly disturbing. You shouldn't listen to it with kids. In fact, you probably shouldn't listen to it at all. The person we're discussing is extremely disgusting. So there's going to be talk of necrophilia, cannibalism, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Sagawa was born April 26, 1949, in Kobe, Japan. He was born prematurely, and doctors weren't actually sure he would survive. Some say he was small enough to fit in his father's palm. However, after battling a few illnesses, he survived, and he grew up, but he remained frail and small. When he was younger, he claims that he was weak and ugly, like a quote-unquote small monkey. He was raised with his brother, who was not a twin, as if they were twins. I'm not sure if this has something to do with Japanese culture, or if this was just something that his parents wanted to do. His parents were very fair, they were traditional and strict, but they were also very loving. There was no abuse, there was no neglect, there was nothing that leads us to believe that Sagawa had anything different than a normal childhood. In fact, Sagawa himself says those were the happiest times of his life. An interesting thing that went on while he was a child, though, are the games that his uncle would play. His uncle would dress up like a savage or an ogre and a barbarian, and he would chase the little kids through the house, saying that he was going to eat them. His father would dress up like a knight and would try to protect the children, but often wasn't able to. He would be killed, obviously, theatrically. And then the ogre would grab the children and put them in a fake pot of boiling water in order to eat them. So as you can see, cannibalism was part of Sagawa's life very early on. The other thing that might be interesting to note about Sagawa's childhood is that sex was considered a taboo subject. His parents never discussed it with him. He never learned anything about it. He claims that he never knew how to masturbate, and instead, he had his dog lick his genitals. Now, I'm not sure how you could not know how to masturbate, and yet somehow still figure out how to get a dog to lick you. Something doesn't seem right here. Something isn't right here. Sagawa's first encounter with cannibalistic desires would come in first grade. He was looking at a, quote, handsome boy's thigh and thought that he would like to eat it. He's very adamant that he's not a homosexual and never had any homosexual desires. It's very odd to me that someone who should be put away for murder and cannibalism is worried that someone might think he's gay. I promise you, gay would be the very, very least of your worries. That doesn't make any sense. That's so odd to me. As Sagawa turned into a teenager, he started having stronger cannibalistic desires. He became more withdrawn and more reclusive. He claims that he couldn't talk to women, and any time that he did, he would shake uncontrollably. There were times when he talked to women and he felt like he was going to vomit, so he stayed away. By all accounts, he wasn't very active at dating or interacting with women or really anyone at this time. So while in high school, he started to have more cannibalistic desires related to eating women. So when he would see their thighs coming out of shorts or skirts or dresses, that would set him off, and he would think about eating them. Into his 20s, he started to fantasize about Western women and quote-unquote beauty. He claimed that women in the West had a quote, beautiful existence, 
and they embodied all of the characteristics of beauty. He felt that personally he only exhibited the ugly aspects of humanity. He was small, he was frail, and he was ugly. In many ways, Sagawa's childhood and teenage years were somewhat normal. While his cannibalistic desires are odd and strange, the rest of it seems fairly normal. I think most guys in high school have a hard time talking to women for the first few times. And I think that can carry into your 20s. So I don't think there's anything strange there. And I think there are plenty of people in high school who do remain reclusive and don't have a lot of friends. High school can be a tough time. So I don't think that there's much we can gather from that. What's really going to send a troubling signal is Sagawa's first brush with the law. At the age of 23, while he was living in Tokyo with his parents, he met an attractive German woman who moved in down the street. He claimed that she looked like a model. Sagawa hatched a plan to eat part of her. He was going to get an umbrella and a rubber Frankenstein mask. He was going to climb into her window, knock her out with the umbrella. He was going to cut off a piece of her skin, preferably from her buttock, and he was going to eat it. This is not the most well-thought-out plan. While he was able to get into her house without her waking, he bumps into her. She wakes up and naturally freaks out, and she grabs him. Now, she's able to overpower him because, remember, Sagawa's small. He's only five foot tall. She holds him down, and she calls the police. The police come and arrest him for attempted rape. Now, Sagawa had a wealthy family, so his father was able to pay off the woman, so he never faced any criminal charges. After this event, Sagawa's father requested that he visit a psychiatrist to determine if something was wrong. Sagawa obliged, and the psychiatrist interviewed him. By the conclusion of the interview, the psychiatrist determined that Sagawa was, quote, extremely dangerous. Nothing would happen. Sagawa didn't continue to visit the psychiatrist. He wasn't medicated. He wasn't institutionalized. Instead, nothing was done. And on April 26, 1977, on his birthday, he moves to Paris. And this is where he would commit his first murder. Sagawa was a very intelligent individual. He was very well-read, he was well-spoken, and he enjoyed more of the finer arts. It's not a surprise that coming from a wealthy and respected family, he was able to get into the Sorbonne University. His intent was to obtain a PhD in comparative literature. He was a great student, but one thing distracted him, the number of Western women. He went from a place in Japan where Western women were extremely exotic to a place that was only full of Western women. Not to mention, a lot of these women wore shorter shorts and skirts, and they exposed more of their body. This is what would set Sagawa off, because his fetish was eating women. The more of the skin he saw, the more turned on he became. So those cannibalistic desires that he's had since first grade were only going to get stronger and stronger, especially around the women that he craved so much. While in school, he would meet what would become his victim, Renee Hartfeld. She was a 25-year-old Dutch woman of Jewish background who grew up in Holland and was kind, trusting, and one of the few students that would ever make an attempt to associate with Sagawa. They were both foreign exchange students. That leads me to believe that both of them were a little more open-minded and a little more exposed to the world. They had a different type of culture and they were interested in other cultures. Hartfeld would explain to her parents that Sagawa was just a normal guy nice enough, and she wasn't concerned. No reason to be concerned in this case. Sagawa was a fairly normal student. In fact, he was a good student. 
It's important to note that her family has not spoken about this since the event, so there's no other comments from them. While Sagawa was in school and before he would harm his victim, he would invite prostitutes back to his apartment. Each time, he would have sex with them, and when they used the restroom, he would plan on shooting them and cannibalizing them. However, he was never able to actually pull the trigger, literally and figuratively. He would get the gun, he would point it at him, but he could never actually complete the deed. So a lot of women were able to escape Sagawa, unknowingly. When he first saw Heartfelt, he was instantly attracted to her. He even made sketches of her. She was kind, and she made an effort to speak to him when few others would. Their first true encounter was a dinner that he had hosted at his apartment. He invited many classmates, but the only one to show up was Heartfelt. At the dinner, they got to know each other a little, and they became friends. Sagawa would start his plot to kill her now. He asked her if she could tutor him in German, a language that she was fluent in, because he enjoyed it. His plan was to have her come over and teach him, and at some point, he would then kill her and eat her. During their first tutor session, Sagawa was not able to even obtain the rifle. He just couldn't do it. At their next meeting, Sagawa obtained the rifle, pointed it at her, and tried to pull the trigger. But the gun jammed. If there's ever a time when there's a message from God, the universe, fate, whatever you want to call it, I would think this would be it. You've had many chances to kill people now. You've either not done it because you couldn't or a gun's jammed. You walk away now, Sagawa. That's what you do. But no, he doesn't. Somehow she doesn't hear the click, so she comes over for a third time. Her last time. On June 11, 1981, while she was reading a poem in German that he claimed was for a course in school, he grabbed the rifle, he pointed it at her, and he pulled the trigger. This time the gun went off. The bullet went through her neck, and she slumped over onto the table and then slid onto the floor. Sagawa claims that he might have fainted at this time, and he wasn't able to remember the details, but he soon awoke, having realized what he'd done. He grabs a towel from the bathroom and puts it under her head to stop some of the bleeding. There's a lot of blood, so the towel's not enough. But Sagawa can't control his desire. He's finally done the thing that he's wanted to do for so long. So what he does is he flips her over and undresses her. He tries to bite through one of her buttocks, the right cheek. Now I only say this because he specifically mentions that he didn't want to eat anything from the left side because it was closer to the heart and he was afraid of blood. This is just another example of how out of touch Sagawa is with reality. He's either stupid to think that we believe that, or he's crazy. I mean, it could be both. I guess it probably is both. But in any case, he couldn't bite through the skin. It wouldn't pierce the skin, and his jaw hurt. So he went and grabbed a knife from the kitchen. It was a fruit knife. That wouldn't pierce the skin either. So Sagawa actually leaves his apartment, he goes to the store, and he buys a curved meat knife. He comes home, he cuts through the buttock, and he claims that all he could see was a corn-like substance. He claims it was like sweet corn. That's obviously fat tissue. I'm surprised someone as intelligent as he was has a hard time differentiating between lean muscle tissue and fat. In any case, he eventually gets to red meat, and he picks a piece off and he eats it raw. He then turns her over and he eats part of her thigh. At this point, Sagawa is extremely sexually aroused. 
He now has sex with the corpse. Over the next 48 hours, Sagawa would cut her body to pieces, eat some of it, and spend all that time in his apartment. Sagawa would claim that he didn't actually want to kill her, that he felt bad after he did it because he lost a close friend. In fact, he would say later that while he was having sex with her corpse, he whispered, I love you, in French to her, and he shivered. I mean, this guy is sick. I don't know if he thinks that saying this is going to make him appear normal or somewhat remorseful, but he's disgusting. He might be the most disgusting person on this show thus far. After spending two days with the corpse, Sagawa bought two suitcases. He had cut her body up in his bathtub and planned to put the pieces of her body, what was left that he didn't eat or save for later, into these suitcases and drop them off somewhere. Again, Sagawa says he's a very intelligent guy, but here's his plan that doesn't work. He puts the body in the suitcases after wrapping them in sheets. He hails a taxi, and he has the taxi take him to a park. When the taxi driver lifts up the two suitcases, he jokingly asks if there's a corpse in there because they're so heavy. Sagawa says, no, there's just books. That taxi driver would later find out how right he was. The taxi driver's confused as to why they're going to a park when he thought they would end up going to the train station, but he obliges, and he takes him to this park. The park is called Bois de Boulogne. I don't speak French. I hope that's somewhat close. But it's on the outskirts of Paris. This is in the summer. It's in June. So it's very bright outside at 8 o'clock. There's also an island restaurant there. But Sagawa's plan is to drop these two suitcases into the lake that's at that park. Now picture this as it actually happened. A taxi stops. A short 5-foot Asian man in a western country gets out with two large suitcases that he can barely carry. He drags them through a park towards a lake. There's a full restaurant and a bunch of people sunbathing and hanging out at this park. There is no better way of calling attention to yourself. I really can't imagine what he could have done outside of wearing neon green clothes that would help actually bring more attention to himself. So people are naturally curious and they start watching what he's doing. Because not only is it just an Asian man with suitcases in a park, which is odd enough, but he can't carry those suitcases. And he's heading towards a lake. Now the accounts differ here as well. Some accounts state that Sagawa went to a bench to sit down and rest, and he fell asleep. He awoke when he heard screams as someone opened up the suitcase and found what he had done, and then he ran off. Other accounts state that Sagawa got worried, panicked, and ran, and then they opened the suitcases after he left them and figured out what was inside. Either way, there's a ton of witnesses that see what happens. Somebody did open those suitcases because they immediately called the police. The police arrive, and they get a sketch of who they believe Sagawa is. They then release this sketch, and the taxi driver recognizes that face. It's a hard face to miss. Once he recognizes who that is, he contacts police and tells them all the details about picking the guy up, how it seemed odd that he wanted to go to the park, and he knows where this guy is. Eventually, they figure out who Sagawa is, and they arrest him outside of his apartment just two days after that. Once they arrest Sagawa, he confesses to everything. In the meantime, they search the apartment. When they search the apartment, they find a large amount of human meat in his fridge, 
they find an audio tape of the murder, and they find a camera with pictures of each stage of dismemberment. Now, Sagawa claims this is the only person he's ever killed. He's never done it again. But he seems to be doing things that are typical of a serial killer. He's got mementos of this person. So not only was he consuming her flesh over the course of several days, not only did he keep a fridge full of her meat to eat, but he's got an audio recording of the murder, which seems odd, and then he's got pictures of each stage of dismemberment. Now, were these items used to relive that moment? Did he enjoy killing her enough that he would go back and try to relive it? I don't know, but that seems odd for somebody who just wanted to try human meat once. And it seems odd for someone who claims they were sad about taking the life of another human being. They didn't find out about the necrophilia until during the autopsy. Unfortunately, during the autopsy, they weren't able to determine who the victim was. But because they found her ID in his apartment, they were able to deduce that it was, in fact, Rene Hartfeld. After he gave every detail, his father was contacted in Japan. There was nothing that his father could do at this time. While his father had paid off his previous victim, he had no leeway in France. Now, I want to take a minute to talk a little bit about the French justice system. Now, I am not a French citizen. I have not studied French law. But from my understanding, for their criminal cases, they always do a psychological and psychiatric evaluation. While they're doing these evaluations on Sagawa, he's housed in a maximum security prison. It took two years. During this time, Sagawa would write a book called In the Fog. This was essentially a, quote, fictional account of what happened that night. So as you can see, he's already trying to make money, and he's already trying to play up his fame while he's still being evaluated for a murder. Somehow, the psychiatrists in France determined that Sagawa is not fit to stand trial. So they do not criminally charge him and instead decide that he needs to remain in a mental institution for life. This would eventually lead to Sagawa being free. Sagawa's father would obtain one of the best lawyers in France that he could afford, probably the most expensive. Sagawa's lawyer would argue that the French people shouldn't have to pay to house this individual. He's not a French citizen. He's an exchange student. He should be deported back to Japan, where he can be treated by Japanese doctors and housed there. The French government agrees. They decide to deport him back to Japan. Sagawa's lawyer would later say, quote, it would have been unacceptable to try this man in France. We don't try mentally ill persons. This is the difference between democratic countries and dictatorships. I'm sorry, but I disagree. He was fully fit to stand trial. And had this happened in the United States, we wouldn't be talking about Sagawa. Well, maybe we would. But he would be guilty and he'd be in prison where he deserves to be. Before having Sagawa deported, Hartfelt's family requested a second opinion. They wanted different doctors to examine Sagawa. They didn't believe that he was as mentally ill as they had said, but that was never honored. The French deported Sagawa. Once Sagawa set foot on Japanese soil, he was technically a free man. Sagawa's father knew this, but he also knew that this could pose issues for his family. Since Sagawa had disgraced his family, there could be people out there that want retribution, that want revenge. There could be a lot of danger for him and his family. Sagawa's father also knew that his son was sick. So, what he did is have the hospital who evaluated him earlier bring an ambulance. 
As soon as Sagawa got off the plane, he was put into that ambulance and he was taken to the hospital for more mental evaluation. The Japanese doctors determined that he wasn't technically insane and he just had an odd sexual fetish. I don't know that odd sexual fetish is an actual diagnosis, and I think it's a whole lot more than that. He's a sick fuck, plain and simple. But because he wasn't convicted in Japan, and he wasn't convicted in France, he was technically a free guy, after 18 months in the Japanese hospital, he walked away. He was incarcerated for only 34 total months for the murder, dismemberment, cannibalism, and necrophilia of Rene Hardfelt. After getting out of the hospital, Sagawa was considered a celebrity in Japan, at least a semi-celebrity. People were extremely interested in what he did. It was an odd behavior, and people were fascinated by how weird and strange and bizarre it was. So initially, Sagawa was able to write books, he was able to do paintings, he starred in pornographic films, he even did two symposiums. He was well sought after individual because people wanted to know what was going on. One of his most egregious films showed him with a Dutch woman at a Dutch amusement park. The woman resembled heartfelt. If that doesn't show a lack of remorse, if that's not absolutely disgusting and insulting, I don't know what is. However, Sagawa would fall on hard times. While he was up, he traveled the world with two women. Two Western women, of course. He went to Canada, Mexico, India, and Iceland. Again, I want to emphasize that right now we have a murderer who ate someone and tried to dump their body in a park, traveling the world. He has a passport to travel the world. I just want that to sink in a little bit. And there are two women hanging out with him. He claims there was no sex. He claims they just used him for his money, which is possible. But here's the odd thing. These two women who traveled with him extensively, they were unable to be found for any of the interviews. No documentaries that were done on Sagawa were able to locate these women. Think of all the articles, books. No one's ever been able to find them. Did he kill them as well? I don't know. It would be interesting to go back and look at the flights and see if you can find out if these women ever boarded their flight home. After traveling the world, eventually his fame in Japan died down. He fell on more hard times. He began stealing money from his father. He would steal first cash, and then he would commit credit card fraud by using his father's credit card. Sagawa's crimes were so horrendous that his father was actually forced to resign. His brother suffered from stress-induced asthma, and maybe the worst part was that his mother tried to commit suicide. So not only did Sagawa destroy a family overseas, not only did he take the life of heartfelt, but he destroyed his own family at home. His parents eventually both died. He doesn't have any contact, as far as I know, with his brother. Sagawa is now unemployed. He's unemployable. Even though he lives under an alias and some people don't know who he is, no one else would hire him. He attempted to go back to school, but once they found out who he was, because he used his real name, the headmaster wanted to admit him because he thought that was courageous. After petitions from the rest of the staff, they determined that he wasn't fit to go to that school. So now Sagawa lives in a small apartment outside of Tokyo. He has a fake dog. I thought this was interesting. He's got a little battery-powered dog that sits in a dog bed, and you can see its chest moving up and down as if it's breathing. 
That is the weirdest thing to me. He says that he can't have a real dog. Well, we probably know why, based on his childhood and his life, but what's with the fake dog? I guess his life has gotten so bad that not only does he have no one, the only companionship he can find is something that's battery-operated. He claims now that he's not into Western women anymore. He doesn't like them. He thinks Japanese women are the most beautiful in the world. I guess white meat is just a little too dry for him. Okay, that was tasteless. And so was that. Technically, he's still obsessed with cannibalism. He talks about how he would still eat human meat if he could. He says that the only way that he can suppress his cannibalistic urges is through masturbation. He's afraid that if he doesn't masturbate often enough that those desires will raise enough to get him to the level he was at before. While stating this, it's important to note that nobody watches him. The Japanese authorities are not interested. He has no doctor. He's got no one overseeing any of his actions. He also claims that due to impotence, he isn't able to masturbate. This is a little nerve-wracking, but in his 60s, he's probably not quite the threat that he was when he was younger. But I guess with a gun, he's still a threat. I thought it was interesting that in a psychiatric evaluation, which was done in 2007, when he explained his issues to a psychiatrist, the psychiatrist remarked that it's somewhat normal for people to want to eat other people since when they're raised, they breastfeed. You're eating someone you love. I don't know where this Japanese psychiatrist went to school, but that sounds extremely Freudian and insane. And I'm just going to say stupid. That sounds stupid. We're going to talk to David about that. But to me, that sounds like the most outrageous, ridiculous statement that you could make, especially if you're a doctor. In any case, here's a little clip from him talking about Sagawa. When I read your book, you mentioned at the beginning that you had become caught up in cannibalism when you were very young. Would you say you stopped daydreaming about your cannibal fantasies? No, I haven't. In my case, my libido and appetite are, I don't know how you say it professionally, but they are connected. This is very important. For instance, you see the beautiful girls on the train in the summer, and you see their legs, don't you? I think they look delicious. That much is true. Do you link your fantasies to masturbation? Of course. That's why I have to suppress my feelings. I masturbate, and when I finish, my feelings disappear. It calms down. So I just repeat that. About the origins of his cannibalism, he had this cannibal fantasy from his childhood. A child suckles onto mother's breast. A child survives eating breasts. So it is not that strange that a child would want to eat something that he loves. When he was a small child, he wasn't a strong kid, and he was brought up spoilt by his parents. In other words, they overprotected him, and perhaps he never learned how to suppress those impulse desires. Another point is, he has written in detail about what he did, 
and he still talks about his crime. He has told us that none of it feels real to him. The fact that he has cut those things off from himself means he might be suffering from depersonalization too. As a result, he is incredibly cold as a person. And deep down, he doesn't regret what he has done. I can see that there's an emotional coldness about him. He has a tendency to slowly turn the other person into an object. I think this is very dangerous. Well, that was interesting. We're going to talk to David about this guy because I think David can shed some light on some of the issues that Segawa has. My personal opinion, this guy's just sick. I don't even know that there's any formal diagnosis we can give. Sagawa now claims that he's extremely depressed and he just wants to die, but he can't kill himself. He said he's too scared to do it. What he would like is if he was torn apart alive, preferably by beautiful women, or, and probably the most disgusting way to die, he would like to drown in beautiful women's spit. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You can't make this up. I do want to reemphasize, a lot of this information comes from Sagawa himself. It's hard to separate fact from fiction here. This is not just a person who was into literature and writing. He's a storyteller. So how much of this story is embellished? How much of what he says is done for attention and money? You have to remember, he doesn't have a job. The only thing he can do is try to sell more and more information and stories about his disgusting act and his disgusting life to make a living. So we can only take this with a grain of salt. What we can take comfort in is that Sagawa's never been happy, and he isn't happy now. He's lived a pretty miserable life, and he's a disgusting piece of filth that lives on government assistance in Japan now. No friends, no family, and that's the type of life someone like him deserves. And there's really not much else to say about him. So I want you to stay tuned for the next episode. We're going to have David on. We're going to talk about the mental aspects behind Sagawa. We're going to see if we can try to dissect his brain a little bit and figure out what made him do what he did, what made him eat her, and maybe to a larger extent, what brings on these cannibalistic desires? Why would one human want to eat another human? It should be an interesting conversation, although gross. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate that. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at Guilty underscore podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Guilty Podcast. And you can email us at guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. So this is Colin for David saying, don't live your life in the fog. <laughs>